Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Budapest, May 1954. Six months after a humiliating 6-3 defeat in a friendly with Olympic champions Hungary, England travelled to the Hungarians convinced the humbling dub the match of the century was a one-off travesty. Hungary by then unbeaten in 26 matches and sporting a new lighter strip with a V-neck design that made England positively look like Victorians in their starched buttoned-up shirts and baggy shorts, took the game's inventors apart, 7-1 this time, confirming the Wembley result was no fluke and cementing their status as hot favourites for that summer's World Cup in Switzerland. It could be argued that despite the 66 World Cup triumph, English football never fully absorbed the tactical lessons dished out by the Hungarians. But by 1954, something in English football was about to change. The shorts were about to get shorter. Umbro, emulating the style of the Hungarian kit, designed a new strip for the vanquished England featuring v-necks instead of collars and much shorter cotton shorts, as was the fashion on the continent. Billy Wright and Al Sherwood meet in pouring rain before the start of the England-Wales duel at Wembley. Here at England debut in what came to be known as the New Continental Kits at home to Wales in November 1954. And that's where I come in. I'm writer-broadcaster Daniel Ruiz-Tyson, and with this show, I'm not for one minute claiming old football was better. It wasn't. The pitches were dreadful, games were often brutal, the stadiums were decrepit, but we all loved the football we grew up with, and I think that half the time, I'd still rather watch an edition of the big match revisited rather than another Super Sunday clash between teams I can watch any night of the week. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. Straight into it today, a Christmas Eve special, and my guest is someone who, unlike Father Christmas, would actually be in the homes of many children on Christmas morning in the form of the boys' annuals whose characters he either created or shaped. For over three decades, Barry Tomlinson edited many of Fleetway's biggest weekly comics, chiefly Tiger and Roy of the Rovers, and also oversaw the launch of the New Eagle in 1982. His Daily Mirror football strip scorer ran for over 22 years, and I got the impression from Barry that despite the huge commitment that entailed, he'd have been happy with it running for another 22 years. As a kid, what were the titles that you were reading and did you reach a point in your childhood where the young Barry Tomlinson thought, yep, this is what I want to do, I want to work in comics, or did you fall into that world? I just fell into that world. As, as a boy, I used to read Dandy Beano, Radio Fun, and the original Eagle when it came out. And uh, I had no great ambitions to be anything to do with comics. I never thought of it at all. Where did you see this job advertised? Did you simply pick up the paper one day and, and see a job advertised at Fleetway? Yes, I did, I did my two years national service and I started doing a little bit of journalism while I was in the army. And when I came out, 
I thought I'd get a job in journalism, but it wasn't very easy. And I tried various jobs. And uh, I went to the National Newsagent magazine and they interviewed me, but they wanted someone with shorthand. I didn't know shorthand. But then they said to me, well, have you seen this advertisement? It says beginners wanted in children's comics. So I thought, oh, it's a job. I'll try that. And I applied for the job, showed them some of the very rough things I've done in the army as a journalist. And uh, I got the job and started in children's comics, started on Lion was the first comic I worked on. Let's just briefly go back to what you were doing while you were doing your national service. Were you actually writing any comic strip ideas? What kind of work were you doing during those two years? It's a very strange story, actually. I was in the Royal Army Pay Corps and I was stationed in Germany. And one day a new Pay Corps soldier arrived at our base to work in our office. And he had a very long suitcase. And I thought, this is very strange. And then inside that suitcase was a trombone. And he started practicing his trombone at every opportunity. And as a joke, I said, well, I think I'll form the anti-trombone league. And people said to me, well, why don't you do a magazine for it? So I did a very crude magazine printed on Gestetner. And uh, I made use of army paper, army printing machines and no one said to me, you can't do that. So I produced this rather amateurish magazine, which was proved to be extraordinarily popular. And uh, I had the idea then, well, let's get some celebrities involved in this. And this was my first excursion into the world of celebrities. And I wrote to Bernard Miles, who I was a great fan of, and uh, he agreed to do things for the magazine. And then I wrote to someone who was the top singer at the time, Petulia Clark, right. joined as well. And I wrote Styx, the cartoonist, who was the top cartoonist at the time, and he agreed to draw from the magazine. So that was me on my way to involving celebrities in the magazine. And uh, I found I had a talent for it, which I made use of much later on. So you started as a sub on Lion. That was through answering an ad. And uh, it's a comic before my time, but a big title in this country's comics history ran for over two decades until the mid 70s. So that's a very big opportunity right at the start for you. I was very fortunate that the editor of Lion was a gentleman called Bernard Smith, and he taught me the technique of being an editor. And it was a brilliant technique that he showed me. And I stayed with that for, throughout my whole time in children's comics. And it was a good system and it worked really well. What was that system? <laughs> make very good use of books, keep a record of everything, make sure everything was in the right place at the right time, make sure the artwork was the right size when it came in. And his system was, as I say, a foolproof system and it worked very well indeed. You were sitting in on writers' meetings almost from the beginning. How useful was that for your development? I didn't feel that comfortable at those meetings. I was much more of a, a practical person wanting to get on and create things and do things. And to sit, to listen to these conversations, very useful though they were for me to learn techniques and so on. I didn't feel comfortable with that. It was only when I went to actually work on a comic that I felt more at home. You become a sub-editor at Lion you're still very young at that point in terms of where you wanted your career within Fleetway to go. What were your ambitions? I didn't have any at that time. I was quite happy to work as a sub online and I could see me working on that for many, many years. But Bernard Smith was replaced as editor of Lion by David Gregory and he was also put in charge of Tiger. So he was running Tiger and Lion and one day a spelling mistake appeared on the front cover of Tiger. And he called me in and said, look, this must never happen again. I'm transferring you from Lion to Tiger. Just make sure that there are no spelling mistakes in the future. So that was me starting out on Tiger. And of course, that was the first time I worked with Roy of the Rovers. We're in the 60s at the moment, early to mid 60s. At this point... How big was the comics industry in the UK compared to 
what it would be in the 70s and 80s? Well, it was very big. Circulations were about 300,000 copies a week for each title. So we had a massive audience. And I found, even as a sub-editor, that I was getting in touch with the readership, knowing what the readership wanted. And then I was referring back to my time as a reader of Eagle. The original Eagle really showed me how the editor could be in touch with the readership. And that was something else I made note of and tried to bring into my work on Tiger, even as a sub-editor. Did you find then that that was a shortcoming in comic titles of the time, uh, eagle aside, that a lot of comics weren't necessarily in touch with their readers? Was there a disconnect there that you felt needed to be filled? Yes, I think they were a bit conservative. They they were featuring some very good stories, but I, I felt that that contact with the readership was maybe just a little bit lacking and something which I changed once I became editor. You go on to play a a big part in so many football comic strips over the next 20, 30 years. Was that your sport? Do you have a sport? Cricket is my favourite sport, which is probably why I brought an awful lot of cricketers into the comic later on. But um, yeah, I'm interested in football, but I'm much more of a fanatic for cricket. Given that passion then for cricket and say, you know, obviously a knowledge of football, given the amount of football uh, strips you went on to produce, were you keen to move to one of the sports titles while you were at Lyon? No, I was happy working on Lyon. And as I say, I didn't really expect to come off that title so quickly. When I went on to Tiger, Roy the Rovers was one of the top stories. And I can remember that when Jag comic merged into Tiger there was an editorial meeting which I wasn't part of to decide how the new Tiger and Jag comic would look and at the end of that meeting I was told that one of the Jag stories would be on the front cover of Tiger every week and then that's the first time I sort of protested and said no no, I don't think that's right we've got Roy the Rovers in Tiger which is such a popular story I think that should be on the front cover every week David Gregory, who was the editor of Tiger at that time, agreed with me. And Roy the Rovers went on to the cover. Had it not gone to the cover at that time, it might not have had the long run it's had now. So that's the first time you encounter uh, Roy Race. He's a character whose further development you'll play a huge part in. At this particular point, I think you've joined Tiger in the 60s. You become editor of Tiger in 69. Yes, David Gregory... Um, was made editor of Shoot, which was the new football magazine. So he left Tiger, and various other people were considered to take his place as editor, but I was very fortunate that David Gregory recommended me to take over. The rest, as I say, is history. And Tiger is a strong title. It's getting stronger through the early to mid-70s. It's inheriting strips from the discontinued Scorcher and the... Around that time, strips like Billy's Boots, Hotshot Hamish. Billy's Boots had many homes, didn't it? Scorcher, Tiger, Roy the Rovers, and it's one of the great Fleetway comic strips. Oh, very much so. People talk about Roy the Rovers, but they should not forget about Billy's Boots. Superbly written by an author called Fred Baker, who wrote so many stories for us. When it came into Tiger, I wanted it to be more true to life because all the stories in Tiger were true-to-life stories. I had to just change that slightly to make it a more true-to-life story. I had more difficulty with Hotshot Hamish when that came into the title, because Hotshot had this powerful shot which would break the back of the net and quite often would knock a building down. (laughs) So I had to tone that down a little bit and make sure it was a more true-to-life story. Nowadays in football, there's no real close season. But up until the early 90s, cricket really would take over in the summer. And I remember with strips like Billy's Boots, he'd actually play cricket in the summer. What I can't remember was if he was playing cricket in a pair of magic cricket shoes. If I'm, my memory serves me right, he was. Cricket was a big thing in those titles in the summer. Yes, I'm very proud of the fact that I came up with the idea of introducing cricket into the Billy's Boots story. He found an old pair of cricket boots that used to belong to Deadshot, and he found that they worked just as well as the football boots did. So 
when he was wearing Dead Shock's cricket boots, he was a very, very good cricketer. But should he lose them, which he did frequently, he would be in slight trouble. But uh, yes, cricket in Tiger in the summer, even Roy played cricket a little bit. And we bought in cricket stories like the slogger from Down Under. So it was a balance between sports. And in the summer, cricket really dominated. When taking on the editorship of any title, what are the first things an editor looks at? Well, I looked at Tiger and it was a sports and adventure title. And I felt that sport was so important to Jordan at that time that we should make the comic all sports. And so I had to drop stories like Jet Ace Logan and Olak the Gladiator and introduce new sports stories in place of them. And that worked. The popularity of the comic increased. So I thought I was on the right track and made it an all sports title. And then I decided to bring in real life sports personalities. I introduced the Tiger Sports Star of the Year competition where the readers could vote for their favourite sports star. So the first year, I was quite confident that a footballer would be the winner. But the first winner was Anne Jones, the tennis player. So I presented the trophy to her. What was happening with the football vote was that everybody was voting for their favourite footballer in their favourite team. So the football vote was hopelessly split. So the second year, I decided that we would nominate the sports personalities they could vote for. And we nominated two or three footballers. And the first footballer to win it, which was in the second year, was the England goalkeeper, Gordon Banks. So I went to Stoke and I presented the trophy to him on the Stoke City football pitch. And we had a good chat afterwards. And here I am talking to England's World Cup winning goalkeeper. And I said to him, have you got lots of things on the go off the pitch? No, he said, nothing at all, really. So quite... Off the top of my head, I said, well, how would you like to write for Tiger every week? He said, yes, I'd love to. There and then I'd sign the England goalkeeper. But on the train, on the way back, I had to sit and think, well, how am I going to fit this into Tiger? How am I going to afford to pay for it? So we had to drop two pages of picture story. And the money involved just about balanced out. So I was OK. And we introduced Gordon's articles, which are weekly articles, which proved to be extraordinarily popular. So that was the first time we introduced a real-life personality to write for Tiger, and it happened almost by accident. And this is the early 70s, am I right? That's right, yes. We'll come to more of those personalities that you get involved in the comics later in the interview. One of the things about Fleetway titles, more so I think than DC Thompson, maybe because if I'm right, Fleetway had more titles, but frequently there would be mergers. So, for instance, Tiger and Speed, to give one example, and eventually, usually, the title that's the junior partner in that merger eventually disappears from the title. Given the amount of titles that got merged, were Fleetway quite impatient or ruthless with titles working, or were they given time to succeed? They were quite ruthless, really. Once a circulation dropped, below a certain level, they would be looking at a merger. And the editor was never consulted about mergers. They were suddenly presented to him, you were going to merge with this title. It was quite good that Tiger inherited some very good titles, some very good stories with Jag, Hurricane, Speed. All those produced good strips to go into Tiger. So it really did strengthen the title because we had the best of strips from various other comics. Were you editor of Speed at the time that it got merged with Tiger? Yes, I couldn't lose on that merger. I was going to say, that's a strange situation, isn't it? I mean, how much in a merger, say how much of Speed would you have kept percentage-wise going into Tiger? Is it 20 30% and the rest is just gone? We'd probably take the two most popular stories. Every time readers wrote to us, they told us what their favourite stories were. We always insisted upon that, so I was able to keep a chart of what stories were popular and ones that were not. And uh, we always took, the, say, the top two stories and merged them into the new title. Did football strips begin to grow as a result of the 66 World Cup success, or was it really the 1970 World Cup that triggered the growth of those titles such as Scorcher? I think there was Score, there were magazines coming out like Shoot and Goal. 
was it 66 or 70 that really pushed all that? I think it was a combination of both those, really. I mean, Shoot was a very successful magazine, but titles like um, Score and Raw and Scorcher didn't last very long. I think the problem with those other football comics was they were competing with Roy the Rovers and Tiger, a very strong character in a very strong comic. So I didn't think they stood much chance of lasting too long, but they did produce some good stories, as I said, to to merge into Tiger. You touched on earlier some of the, or one of the talents that you worked with during your long career. Which talents did you particularly enjoy working with during your time at Fleetway? It was a very, very good time. All, All the authors who worked for us were extremely good writers, knew their job very well indeed. And it was the same with artists. The quality of artwork was absolutely superb. As an editor, I was very, very lucky that we had such a high standard of writing and drawing for the comics. And I think that contributed a great deal to the popularity of the titles. How did these strips originate? Were they conceived by yourself, by staff? Were they pitched to you by writers and then you would match them up with suitable artists? What was the process behind that? Sometimes it would be a, a, a writer would come up with a new idea. Sometimes it would be me. Sometimes it would be based on what the readers were talking to us about. So once we got an idea for a new story, I'd have a meeting with the author in my office at King's Reach Tower. We'd talk over the storyline, work out when it was going to start, who it was going to feature. And after the meeting, we'd go off a very nice, long, leisurely lunch and continue our conversation. It was very civilised. And I can remember Tom Tully, who wrote so many strips for our comics, and he was the writer for Roy the Rovers during most of my time as editor. And uh, particularly after an editorial meeting in the office, we'd go out for lunch. It would be an extraordinarily long lunch, ending with Tom sitting back with a cigar and a brandy and we continue that conversation. It sounds a bit wasteful, really, in the amount of time we spend at lunch, but great many ideas were came to light over a good lunch. So let's say it's December 2020. The comics industry has always remained as big as it was during your time. And we're having one of these long, leisurely lunches to discuss an idea that you're keen on for a particular comic. At what point in 2021... Would that title be ready to launch that new comic strip? Well, the comics were always sent to the printer six weeks before their publication date. So it'd probably be about three months from the original discussions where you'd wait to get the new script in from the writer, and that might take a week to 10 days. Then you'd have to find an artist who's available, send it to the artist, look at his first pencils, look at his work, and decide if the character he'd drawn was right for the script. It took quite a long time, particularly if it was an artist that was based in Italy or South America. Actually, you had a very interesting situation with one of your artists. It was during the Falklands conflict. There was a very complex way of getting some artwork delivered. Am I right? I think you touched on that in your in your book or interviews that I've heard. Yes, um, an artist called Schiaffino, who was an Argentinian artist, he was working for us drawing Hotshot Hamish. So Fred Baker would write the script. We would send it to an agency in Italy who would translate it. They would then send it to Argentina. And when the artwork was finished, the artist would post it to an address in Brazil. And then someone in Brazil would send the artwork to us. And that system, which was quite complicated, it worked very well indeed. And we didn't lose any artwork at all. It's very interesting talking, say, for example, Fred Baker, the writer, and Schiaffino, the artist. The story, Hotshot Hamish, was based in Scotland. And it was being drawn by someone from Argentina and written by an Englishman. And those two only met on one occasion. It, it was in my office. Had they it's, been working together for a long time by then? They'd been working together for many, many years. And people would think that they were meeting each other all the time. But... Fred's humour in the scripts translated very well. And uh, this this Argentinian artist captured that humour. And it was a great moment when they met for the first time. 
Hotshot Hamish, uh, jumping forward a few years here towards, I think, the, well, the final years of Roy the Rovers, he was teamed up with Mighty Mouse, another largely comedic character. Do you remember the decision to match those two up? Yes, it was when we were looking to revamp the comic. We had the Mighty Mouse story and the Hamish story. So to bring them together was a natural thing. Of course, they were both written by Fred Baker, both drawn by the same artist. So that was a very easy job to do because it blended it, those two characters blended together and became perhaps even more popular as a partnership. Let's move to the mid-70s, 76 more specifically, a, a very interesting year for you. By this time, you're head of Fleetway's Boys Sport and Adventure Department. You make a huge decision to launch Roy as a separate title. How long had that idea been germinating? Well, it hadn't been, really. I was called into the editorial director's office, and he said that Tiger's going really well. We want you to bring out a companion comic for it and make it all football. I said, OK, that's fine. He said, well, what should we call it? And it just came into my head, let's call it Roy of the Rovers. He said, you can't do that. That's the top story in Tiger. You can't take it out of Tiger. So I said, well, look, let's run the story in both comics, a different version of the story in both comics, but linked, and see what happens. And if Tiger suffers enormously, we'll have to rethink the whole thing. Well, the Roy the Rovers comic doesn't do as well as I think it's going to. We'll have to make some changes. But we did that. We launched Roy the Rovers, and uh, it was very successful for Roy to have his own comics home comics supported by seven other football stories and Tiger with Billy's boots taking over as a number one story didn't lose any circulation so we had two successful companion comics going at the same time. So initially was Roy the Rovers also appearing in Tiger during the early weeks of the Roy the Rovers launch or was it immediately pulled from Tiger? No it carried on in Tiger for probably two or three months I think David Skew drawing Roy the Rovers in the new title and Yvonne Hutton drawing the story in Tiger. They were linked, the two stories, but they weren't 100% the same. Did you So the link was there and, and it worked very well. Did you think that arrangement could continue long-term or was it just very important to pull Roy the Rovers from Tiger and allow Tiger to find its feet post Roy the Rovers and, and for the focus of Roy the Rovers to be in Roy the Rovers? Yes, I thought that Tiger was strong enough to deal with losing Roy the Rovers. And uh, as I say, Billy's Boots took over as a top story and we had other stories like Hotshot Hamish and Tiger still going, plus the real-life footballers writing, a sports personality is writing in Tiger. So each title was strong enough to support itself. So let's take a look at the launch of uh, Roy the Rovers. I know just from producing this show, just uh, how launches can go wrong. So how much of 1976 was spent planning the new title from the moment that you got called in uh, by the top brass, putting forward this idea for a new football comic, and you come back with, let's do Roy the Rovers. How long from that meeting before the actual launch? It was quite quick, actually. I sat down in the office but I think for a day, and concentrated on working out stories for Roy the Rover's comic. And uh, I worked out seven new stories to go into it. And those ideas seemed to work quite well, because I went to the various scriptwriters and said, here's some ideas, which one do you want to do? That worked well. It went very quickly, really. It was only a few months before we had the stories written, drawn, and ready to go into the title, because I wanted to launch it as soon as possible, because it was a very exciting title to launch. And to give some impact to the launch, I thought we need a big name to write for the first issue. So I wrote to Buckingham Palace and said, would the Duke of Edinburgh write an article for the first issue? And he said, yes, he would. My technique of uh, asking famous people to do things continued to be successful. And uh, the Duke wrote for the first issue, which is something of a scoop for a children's comic. And you launched in September, so just early into the new football season. Was it important to get it out early on in the football season? Was that the right time to launch it? Oh, I think it was, yes. A couple of months later or a couple of months earlier would have been wrong. That that was a good time to launch a title, a football title. 
you thought up most of the ideas for the new comic. There was uh, Tommy's Troubles, a strip about a schoolboy, Tommy Barnes and his pal Ginger Collins, who start their own team. It inspired many a kid, including myself, to uh, do likewise, albeit not very successfully. I remember every goal that Barnes United scored was some long-range screamer. There were no tap-ins in that team, and it was a real favourite of mine. It was just a, just a brilliant, brilliant strip. They were always having problems with the field that they were renting for their home games it was just it was it was Grange Hill meets Roy the Rovers and Grange Hill before Grange Hill really yeah well that again was um Fred Baker was the writer he was doing Hay Mission Billy's Boots and he took over Tommy's Troubles and <laughs> he was just right for it he was a marvellous writer because when you looked at any of his scripts there was no major storylines but just the day-to-day problems that someone would encounter. And it worked very well indeed. And I was delighted with Tommy's troubles. It was Billy's boots without the boots. The Hard Man was a brilliant strip, a very funny strip. There was the memorable Ajax tribute uh, strip. Uh, Johnny Dexter, the Hard Man, the captain of Danefield United, and uh, one of the great comic creations, Victor Boscovich. Who was he based on? I'm, I'm going to say... Brian Clough, am I wrong? <laughs> well, The Hard Man was a story I wrote myself. I wrote it in the first issue of Roy the Rovers and carried on writing it for many, many years. And Victor Boscovic, wonderful character, but it was never planned that he would take over the strip as he did. I wrote him into the story. And when I saw the artwork by Doug Maxted, it was so good. It inspired me to turn Victor into a particular character. Um, who was he based on? He wasn't based on Brancoff. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> he was one of the first foreign managers because foreign managers weren't in English football at that time. And we led the way with that. It was just the fact that Doug Max's artwork inspired me to turn him into the character that he was. And he did almost take over the strip eventually. I don't remember the early strips of the hard man so how long was it before Viktor Boscovich uh, was introduced I think it was probably six months to a year afterwards and there was a great relationship between Johnny Dexter and uh, Viktor Boscovich just talking about the hard man one of the images that always stands out for me is you'd have Johnny Dexter sitting on the manager's desk and uh, Victor Boscovich, you know, holding forth. It was just a very passionate relationship between the two of them. It was a great double act. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? And if things happened which excited Victor or upset him, he'd quite often faint on the spot to be caught by Johnny Dexter before he could hit the floor. That sort of humour, it, it worked nicely. It inspired me to do those sort of things because the artwork was so good. It's something I think that is almost underrated about Roy the Rovers. So we think about the knockabout humour of Fleetway comics, you know, Cheeky, Whoopi, Whizzler and Chips. We think about the DC Thompson titles, the Dandy and the Beano. But this was also going on in Roy the Rovers. I mean, these, these strips, some of these strips were actually very, very funny and played for laughs. Yeah, it was good to get a balance between serious football and some humour as well. I think the balance worked very well indeed. It worked well with the readership and also with the readers' dads. One of the secrets of producing a successful comic is to have the dads reading it as well. If that happened, they didn't mind buying it each week and having it delivered with the morning newspaper. So get dad on your side. That was half the battle. By the mid-70s, you're editing two different titles. Uh, I think we touched on earlier, you were also editing Speed for a while. I think at one point you were editing maybe six titles. How did all this work? Were all the in-house staff from those titles working on the same floor and you're in your office overseeing it all? Yes, we were on the same floor. When I was editor of Tiger, then I was editor of Roy of the Rovers, but producing two titles as editor... I felt I was concentrating too much on the day-to-day stuff rather than planning PR events and planning new stories and so on. So I persuaded the management to appoint an editor on each title with me as the group editor. And that was the first time that had been done. And that worked well because 
as I say, the day-to-day stuff could be done by the editor and his staff, while I supervise the general look of the title and all the P ideas that I came up with, I could concentrate on those and also meet the writers and discuss storylines and so on. How important was it to have that free time to meet the writers? I had time for it before. It meant that other things would suffer. So having the grand title of group editor did give me the opportunity of putting more ideas into the comics and planning all sorts of other stuff like free gifts and so on, which I wouldn't have had time to do if I'd have been doing day-to-day editing. A strip I forgot to mention, a real favourite of mine, and a very clever strip the way it was done, Mike's Miniman, about a kid and his Sabucho team. Am I right that you weren't allowed to mention Sabucho or you never mentioned Sabucho? There was a very creative way you went about producing that uh, strip. Yes, it, it was Sabutio, but we never said it was. But at the same time, we were doing lots and lots of tie-ups with Sabutio in competitions, competition prizes and so on. So although we didn't say the word Sabutio, it was quite obvious that's what it was. And to have a story featuring Sabutio was a great reader identification because lots of readers were interested in that themselves. And that worked very well. And it's amazing nowadays how popular that story Mike's Miniman still is with Sabutio players. They still talk to me about it on a regular basis. And it's very rewarding that uh, they remember what we produced all those years ago. I don't think it was one of the long-running strips in Roy the Rovers, was it? It wasn't around for as long as some of the other strips, but it is a strip that's very well remembered, as you say. Yes, it didn't have a particularly long life. Um, Once again, we had to go by the readers' reactions and their votes, and that disappeared because it was going down on the voting chart. I think if it was run today, it'd be very high on the voting chart. But at that time, it didn't have a long life. As it's Christmas, let's take a brief look at the preparation that went into annuals, a a massive part of comics in those days. How much of your time was spent on those every year? The annuals were done many, many months before they were on sale. And it was slightly difficult producing the annuals because we had the regular stories, but quite often the artists didn't have time to do annual stories. So it was a great opportunity for us to bring in other artists so we could test them out to see what they could do. As far as the writers were concerned, we mainly used the the regular writers on the stories. So it was a chance for people to show their talent, tell us what they could do. And quite often, someone would produce some good work for the annuals and we'd go on to use them in the weekly title. There were some artists who would never say no if we said, can you do the annuals well doing the weekly comic? They would agree to do so, but I think maybe they were a bit overloaded with work at that time. I, I did try to have regular artists on the front cover of the annual, so I thought that was good to identify what it was, that it was from the Tiger Stable or the Rover Stable or whatever. What was the key to producing a good annual? To keep it as close to the weekly comic as you possibly could. If someone bought Tiger every week, when they bought Tiger annual, they'd want a very true reflection of the weekly comic. And it's great how the annuals have lasted so long. So many people get in touch with me saying that They've still got a stash of annuals in their attic or in their garage or under their bed. And uh, I'm rather sorry that during various house moves, I've lost most of my annuals. I've only got a couple left now. They are real collectibles, aren't they? They're very collectible and they've lasted very well indeed. Now, I don't know if this is something that I imagined. I was exposed to annuals in the late 70s. They struck me then as being more Christmassy and... As we moved into the 80s, I felt as a reader that something seemed to alter, that annuals became more a a collection of stories, not all festive themed, bound within the covers of, you know, these what would be collectibles in the future. But the stories weren't necessarily bound up with Christmas. Is that just my imagination or was there a conscious shift to just make these annuals that you could buy at any time of the year rather than just Christmas? I think it might be in your imagination. Right. 
Maybe I maybe I overthought that. I know that you know they would go on sale in the summer, wouldn't they? But I just remember you know you'd get these annuals, memorable annuals with festive covers, and then there just seemed to be less uh, less of a festive element to them. I think it it was probably a good idea not to have a festive cover because they were on sale for September time right through to the new year. So you didn't want to date them too much. So uh, that would probably be one of the reasons. But I can't remember, remember any conscious decision to change the, the look of them. How did you make sure you could identify new and emerging talent? I mean, you, you talked about using the annuals and the holiday special as a, as a test bed for new talent. But in the first place, how did these people come to your attention? Were they sending you samples or were you having to read lots of competing titles? Also, in those days, writers and artists didn't get credited, did they? So if you were reading something and you liked the artwork or the script, how difficult was it for you to find out who was behind that work? We had quite a few agencies that we dealt with on a regular basis, and they specialised in comic artwork. There was probably about half a dozen English agencies that we dealt with, and there was also a big agency in Italy which dealt with the South American artists as well as the Italian artists. And then there was another agency which specialised in Spanish artists. So quite often it would be the agent who would come to us with artwork, samples of artwork, for us to make a judgment upon. So we didn't really have to search too much. They came to us mainly via agencies. You did a lot of PR work, uh, as you mentioned earlier, pulling in personalities to publicise the comics. That started in your national service days. I remember reading Comic Book Hero. It wasn't an idea that immediately found favour with the top brass, was it? And maybe they weren't ever fully convinced by it, but it did seem to work for the titles that uh, you were running. Yes, I didn't have any problem with Tiger and Roy the Rovers with celebrities. Um, as far as the management was concerned, it was only when I relaunched Eagle and we brought in people like Mike Reed, who was producing a regular Radio 2 show at that time with a massive audience. We signed Daley Thompson, who was a gold medal winner and very much in the forefront of sports personalities. We brought people like those into Eagle. And one day I got a memo saying... You're too starstruck. Take these celebrities out of the Eagle immediately, which I thought was wrong because the original Eagle certainly had that balance between real personalities and stories. And I was trying to get that same balance in the Eagle, but uh, I was told to take them out. But fortunately, in Tiger and Roy the Rovers, that was okay. <laughs> like I got away with it now. You use these um, personalities, these sports and showbiz personalities really well for, as you say, Tiger and Roy the Rovers. How would you use them for the Christmas editions of the comic? We would set up photo shoots probably around about September time. And uh, I had a, a Father Christmas outfit and a Christmas tree and we'd take those along to various celebrities' houses and um, get them to do Christmas pictures, even though it was halfway through the year. It was amazing that how willingly people got involved with Tiger and Roy the Rovers. The reputation of those titles was such that I could really ask anybody to do anything. And I can never remember an occasion when someone said no. So we went to the very top sports stars, the very top show business people like Morecambe and Wise, and got them involved. We had Eric Morecambe writing for Roy the Rovers because he was a great football fan. And we had Ernie Rise in Tiger. So to get the two top people who are getting an audience of many, many millions on their TV shows to be writing and be involved in a children's comic was something a bit special. Also, something that's changed a lot in the last 20, 25 years is that a lot of these people that you were getting on board were sports stars. But it was a time when it wasn't just footballers that were household names. You'd even have people like Jeff Cape say, uh, you know, the strongest man competitions would be a household name. Athletes would be household names. Boxers would be household names. Uh, athletes that you maybe only saw competing during the Olympics would be household names. The limelight was shared across all the sports. It was certainly, yes. That's why I started with football, football personalities getting involved like um, Gordon Banks and Trevor Francis. 
they were the first two footballers I signed. And then Malcolm McDonald, he had a long run writing for Tiger. Then in the summer, um, we had Jeffrey Boycott, Tony Gregg and Ian Botham were writing for us at various times. Because it was the fact that they knew the title. If I went to them and said, look, I'm the editor of Tiger, can you do this for Tiger? I'd always get a yes, never a no, which is wonderful. If you were to look back at 1976 and in an alternative universe, you and Fleetway don't make that decision to give Roy his own title. Would Tiger have gone on for longer and would Roy have got as big as he got? Um, I think Tiger might have gone on for longer. I don't think Roy would have got as big had he not had his own comic at that time. The PR things that I introduced into Roy the Rovers gave the title a following it may not have had with straight picture strips by involving other things into that comic. I think it made it stronger. I've got a, a list here of some of the most famous storylines and you know some of the big PR successes for Roy the Rovers. Obviously, you've got the very, very famous Who Shot Roy Race, I think, around Christmas 81. I remember that, and that was... Uh, that was a shocking storyline, even though it was on the back of Dallas. It was about 18 months later, and that was very dramatic, got a lot of press attention. There was the temporary move to Walford, Walford Rovers, Handley Rovers, so you could keep the Roy the Rovers thing. That fascinated me. I remember asking you a few months ago via email, what was the thinking behind that? And again, you said that was it, it was a good PR opportunity. Yes, it was. Um, we did so many PR ideas and they all seemed to work. The boy shooting, for example, was a massive coverage. But strangely, the biggest PR story we came up with was when his wife left him. Um, Roy had been spending too much time at the football club and not enough time with his wife. When he came home very late at night from a training session, there was a note on the door saying, your dinner's in the oven, I've gone home to mother. You think that was a very routine sort of storyline, but the next morning I was phoned by ITN and said, look, we want you on the ITN news to discuss what's happened to Roy and his wife. And it was on BBC television in the evening and every newspaper carried the story. The great joy of this is that newspapers and the media in general treated it as a a real event. They treated Roy as a real character, which is what I did. And they went along with that. And it was really great. They didn't discuss, did you and the scriptwriter work this idea out? They didn't talk about that. They talked about Roy's wife leaving him. And that added to the fun of the situation. And it's amazing. You never know what it's going to take off and what isn't. The early 80s for Roy were, it was my entry point into the comic. And if I remember rightly, it was quite a dark time because there was the shooting, there was the wife leaving him. I think there was a relegation as well, if I remember rightly, in the early 80s. So there was a lot going on. Not much was going right for uh, Roy Race at that particular time. Very unusual in a comic, really, to be coming up with such dark storylines. Wasn't very common for UK titles at that time. No, I, I wanted to concentrate on Roy's life off the pitch as well as on it. I mean, in the old days, in the 50s, in the first episode, Roy would say, OK, lads, let's try and win the FA Cup this year. And you knew full well that in the last instalment, they would win the FA Cup. But I wanted to make things more true to life. So Melchester Rovers won matches and lost matches. And Roy had a life off the pitch. He became the first boys comic hero to get married, first boys comic hero to become a father. Talking about the uh, the 50s, we're going to come to the Melchester Rovers kit designs in in a moment. The kit from the 50s was a rather curious arrangement. There was red, yellow, and I think blue shorts, perhaps. That was some time before you got involved. You did get involved in some of the memorable Melchester Rovers kit designs, didn't you? Yes. I mean, that first strip they wore in the 1950s and 60s was okay, but there were so many colours in it. It was very difficult to decide what the opposition team should wear. And when we started doing Roy the Rovers in colour, I thought it was time that we changed the strip. So one day I just sat down and doodled and came up with the red and yellow, all red and yellow strip, which is a strip that people seem to like very much indeed. And we ran with that strip until we had the first sponsorship when Gola 
introduced a Malchus de Robes strip to be on sale in shops and at the same time to be featured in the comic. And then the Malchus team were wearing Goanu on the front of their shirts, which seemed a good idea and it reflected what was happening in real-life football. But there were so many protests, not so many, there were a lot of protests about Goanu being on the front of the shirts. It was even raised in Parliament with an MP standing up that it was a disgrace that children should have advertising in their own comic. So I was instructed to take Gola off the front of the shirts, even though Gola were producing it, and even though we were reflecting what was happening in real-life football. So that was a shame, but uh, it didn't last very long. But by the time we got onto a Nike sponsorship strip, there was no problems at all. I think the Gola thing came in in the summer of 81. That was just before sponsorship was widespread. So when you did take Gola off the shirts... Initially, that didn't mean that the relationship with Gola had finished. It just meant that you weren't allowed to be emblazoning the Melchester Rovers shirt with the Gola logo. That's right. Yes, the strip was still on sale, but it made the players look a bit naked without a sponsor on the front of the shirts. Let's go back to the early 80s briefly, your involvement with The New Eagle, uh, a comic that you were passionate about, and you'd been pushing for a relaunch for some time, hadn't you? Yes, I, I really wanted to produce it again because I thought it was a great shame that it, it, it was lying dormant. So I put the idea to the management on a number of occasions. Eventually they said yes. So we launched Eagle again, wanted to make it a little bit different. So we introduced photo stories as well as drawn picture strips. And because I thought that the readership was identifying a lot with television and they were used to visual photographs rather than drawn strips. But it turned out that the readership was very set in their ways, and they didn't really like the idea of photo strips, even though I think we produced them fairly well. In the days before computers, there was no computer effects that we could do. Everything had to be stuck down on board, and any effects had to be added on top of that. I think we did it reasonably well, but the readership didn't go for it at all. Photo stories did work, though, with girls' comics, didn't they? They'd been doing it for a while. Yes, I think they were more static. They were really talking heads, and mostly they didn't have nuclear wars and spaceships and aliens and explosions and the sort of thing we had in the boys' comics. It was a radical idea for the time, and the New Eagle included a much-forgotten football strip, Thunderbolt and Smokey, which I vaguely remember a sort of photo version of Tommy's Troubles. How difficult was it to produce that strip? What was the process? Because how did you, for instance, come up with, a, was there a casting process to bring in the people, the, the kids to play these characters? That particular story was written by Tom Tully, who wrote Boy of the Rovers. He would write the script and we would choose a photographer and it would be the photographer who went out to an agency to get the characters get the people to play those characters. We, we didn't get involved in that. They'd be presented to us, uh, are these the right sort of characters that you, you want? Uh, on the editorial side, we left that mainly to the photographer to produce. It did get a lot of publicity, the relaunch of Eagle. Were you editing it or you had overseen its launch? Yes, I, I organised the launch. I was the group editor of Eagle. We did a wonderful launch at the Waldorf Hotel. It was in the days when... I could get away with most things. So we had the, the Waldorf. And I discovered that in one of the very large rooms where we were going to do the presentation, that the floor was strong enough to take a car. So I thought we'd make use of this. We thought if it's strong enough to hold a car, would it be strong enough to hold a car plus Big Daddy, the wrestler? <laughs> so it was. So on the launch day, we had a big paper screen across the room on which the Mekon appeared and threatened Dan Dare. But when the Mekon faded away, Big Daddy arrived sitting on the bonnet of a white minivan, holding up the first copies of Eagle. And he burst through the screen. It was a bit of a shock to everybody because they hadn't expected a car to suddenly drive into the room. So it was a good launch. The Waldorf produced green cocktails, Mekon cocktails, 
for the press who were attending. And we had a very big press turnout for that because everybody wanted to compare the new eagle with the old eagle. They were a bit disappointed, a lot of people, that we only had Dan Dare and the eagle cutaways in the new version. But as I said, it, it was a title that we produced for the readership of that day rather than days gone by. Let's jump forward now to the mid-80s. Video games are on the rise. Were you in the comics industry aware of the threat this posed to the comics industry? Is this what eventually did for that old mainstream comics industry in the UK? Yes, it was. We were facing competition. In the old days, the most important thing in a child's life was his weekly comic arriving with the newspaper first thing in the morning. The boy or girl would race downstairs and pick up the copy and sit down and read it before they went to school. So comics were very, very important in those days. But once computers came along, television was getting making more of an impact. We had much more competition. It wasn't we were no longer competing with other comics. We were competing with the media, which was extraordinarily powerful. But despite that, when we launched Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles in this country, that took off and we went up to nearly 900,000 circulation at one time, which was you know, a great compliment. In fact, if you produced the right comic, you could still sell. Looking back, was there anything that Fleetway and its competitors could have done to compete better against video games? Or was it just an unstoppable force that you were up against? I think maybe we could have got more involved with video games to make sure some of our characters appeared on them, which would be a good way of advertising those characters. But that very rarely happened. You finished up at Fleetway in the late 80s, I think. Most of us were, were, well, most of us are working from home these days. You were doing this 30 years ago because, am I right that when you finished with Fleetway for a while, you'd, uh, you'd set up on your own, you had people freelancing for you, you were delivering those titles through your own company, started really well, ended in slightly disappointing fashion. Yes, I went to the management when I was the group editor and I could see that circulations were falling. So I put a proposition to the management that I could produce the comics much more cheaply and present them to the publishers as a finished job. To do that, I would take with me all the editors from my group, they would all go freelance and no longer would the publishers have to worry about office space, cost of telephone calls, stationery, all those sort of things, or the building. I would produce them fairly cheaply, but not have any loss of standard at all. And the comics would continue to look as that as they did before. And that system worked really well. And the management was very, very pleased with the idea. And I'll say it worked brilliantly, but I made the big mistake of not insisting upon a contract. And when, after about 18 months, a new management team came in, they said, oh, we don't want the comics produced miles away. We want them produced here in the office. We want to come in in the morning, look over people's shoulder, see what they're producing. So one by one, the comics were taken away from me, I'm starting with uh, Boy the Rovers. And I was eventually only left with Eagle that eventually was also taken away. So that was a, a disastrous time for me from the beloved comics, many of which I started myself, I was no longer responsible for. But I was very lucky that exactly the same time, the Daily Mirror came to me and said, we'd like you to produce a football story. First of all, they wanted Roy the Rovers, but then they looked at it again and thought that there were restrictions on producing a Roy story and what you could do off the pitch and on the pitch. So they asked me to come up with the idea for a new footballer, and that was called Scorer. And I was fortunate that that strip lasted 22 years, six days a week. I'm guessing that was your longest-running commitment with a single character? Yes, it was, yes. It started off as a single strip of pictures, then became a double strip, and eventually a triple strip. And it started in black and white, then went into colour, then went into 3D colour, it was a nice success story, and I was very disappointed when it finished after 22 years. Oh, you still think, and you were still ready to continue with it? Oh, yes, I was very much. I, I produced the strip for the mirror as a finished job. I, I employed the, the writer, the artist, and the colorist, 
and sent the finished job to the mirror. So it arrived with them ready to go. So um, yes, that was part of my life for 22 years after the comics and it fitted in very well. There's also a little remembered title. I don't actually remember it. I, I've been reading about it and I think, oh, I do remember that. I don't think I remember it, but it's an interesting one. Hotshot, which ran for a year, 89 to 90, and you got Gary Lineker involved with that. Yes, because Roy the Rovers was doing pretty well. The management asked me to produce another football comic, and I knew the comic would have to have a central character, like Roy the Rovers had Roy Race. So I thought the Hotshot should have the top football at that time, which was Gary Lineker. He had all the star qualities. So um, we approached Gary and his manager, and uh, fortunately he agreed to spearhead the comic. But it was a case that Hotshot was competing against Roy of the Rovers, and I'm afraid it, Roy was dominant. Was this also through Fleetway? Yes. Your work with Roy didn't finish with the comic, though. I think you wrote uh, his strips and a couple of tabloids. Am I right? Did you have an involvement with the Daily Star and Today versions of Roy the Rovers how long did those strips run for and in terms of continuity how did they feed into the Roy the Rovers universe within the specific comic well I wrote the one that was in today that was a color strip it looked okay it fitted in with the storyline it was a little bit more perhaps racy than in the comic racy in a different way (laughs) so that I think that lasted probably about a year and then later on, it went into the Daily Star, drawn by Yvonne Hutton in that occasion. And that lasted, I think, probably 18 months, two years. And it was good to see the character in the national newspaper. That added again to the people that got to know the character and what it was like. So that again added to the popularity. Just before we finish up and come to the books that you've been working on and where people can find you on social media, after spending you know decades working to tight deadlines, albeit on a weekly basis, what were the challenges of writing short strips on a daily basis? Because six days a week is not an easy thing to be doing creatively. I should say it was extremely difficult. It just came very naturally to me. I could write picture strips very easily. I wrote so many for the comics. And when I came on to writing for a newspaper, you have to have a certain technique. You've got to end. You might only have three or four pictures, but you've got to end up with a little bit of a, a cliffhanger at the end of that. But at the same time, keep the continuity of the story going and keep people's interest. So it's a slightly different technique for newspapers, but I didn't find it a problem at all. Tell us about the two books you have out. Here's my copy of Comic Book Hero, well read. It's a book that I've revisited on a number of occasions over the last uh, few years. It's a wonderful insight into your career in the industry. It's obviously a more detailed account of what we try to touch on here. It features comic strip characters you either created or whose stories you helped shape. How long did it take you to put that particular book together? I think from start to finish, it might have been about a year because I was looking at all sorts of photographic references to go with the book as well and uh, a few rewrites here and there. So Comic Book Hero is all about all the comics I edited, including briefly about Roy the Rovers. But my other book, Real Roy the Rovers stuff, is all about Roy the Rovers. I mean, Roy deserves a book for himself, so he's got his own book and Comic Book Hero features all the other characters. Comic Book Hero also features a number of uh, fantastic pictures of yourself in the 70s and 80s. I particularly like the 70s Barry Tomlinson. I think at one point you've got a moustache. and uh, hey, you know, Hairy Barry Tomlinson <laughs> in those days. I could do with some of that now. I've said this to you before. I was too young to go into that industry. By the time I came of age, that industry was almost dead sadly and looking through all those pictures in comic book hero it is kind of how i imagined and you know you've got the tiger sports of the year awards pictures um trophies being awarded to well-known sporting personalities 
all these mentions of all these writers and artists, great talents that you were working with. And it just seemed like it was a really wonderful time. And it's what most of us dream of to live a life where we're actually doing a job that we love. That is not something that many people can say they've had. No, I was very lucky. I think I had a dream job. I mean, editing a comic just by itself is, is a very special job. But then to involve all these famous people within the comic, it's wonderful to, to stand there and be double face slapped by Eric Morecambe or to stand next to Jeff Hurst or one of my cricketing heroes, Dennis Compton or Tony Gregg or Jeffrey Boycott or whatever. It, it was a, a dream come true. Every boy's dream come true, really. What are you working on now? I've just finished my autobiography, which has a big chunk about the comic world, but it's, it's my world from the day I was born to now. I think it was a quite an interesting life. And it takes aboard my time growing up and reading comics and then my national service, and then my time in the police cadets, and then my life as a journalist. I've just finished another book of very short stories, football stories, but rather weird way out, very silly stories, something totally different from the world of Roy the Rovers. People can follow you on Twitter at BarryEditor1. It's uh, been a great opportunity for me to speak to you after months of correspondence. Someone who, I suppose for people of my generation, just had a massive impact. I mean, the stories, the memories that you left my generation with, that nostalgia will never die. It's just been a wonderful opportunity and, and to catch up with you and, you know, to read about these creations and how they were brought to life in Comic Book Hero. I think for many people just to, just to edit Roy the Rovers would have been enough to be editing things like Tiger and Roy the Rovers at the same time is, is just an incredible achievement. And of course, I, I do hope uh, that you are proud of the work that you have, have turned out and the stories and the way you fuel the imagination for my generation it's just it's just wonderful to have the opportunity to speak to you and to say thank you for that well thank you for saying that it, it is very rewarding to know that people remember what we produced and on twitter i have so much correspondence with people who were readers of my titles and they made an impact upon them and at the time i didn't realize how much of an impact and that is i say a very rewarding thing to know i appreciate your time barry thank you very much Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Barry Tomlinson there, a really comfortable hour and a bit with him and how I'd like to have had one of those long lunches with him chewing over comic strips back in yesteryear. I hope you enjoyed that. Do please rate, review and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you download it from and share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links. The show can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been the When Shorts Were Short Christmas special. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm.